Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. stand for the call to worship. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above in the heavens. When we look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, who are we that you are mindful of us, that you care for us, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us worship God. compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God will not hold his anger forever, so though we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, we can confess to God without fear those things that weigh on our hearts. Let us pray. Almighty God, 
you poured your spirit upon gathered disciples, creating bold tongues, open ears, and a new community of faith. We confess that we hold back the force of your spirit among us. We do not listen for your word of grace, speak the good news of your love, or live as a people made one in Christ. Have mercy on us, O God. Transform our timid lives by the power of your spirit and fill us with a flaming desire to be your faithful people, doing your will for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. in a position to condemn only Christ and Christ died for us Christ rose for us Christ reigns in power for us Christ prays for us anyone who is in Christ is a new creation the old life has gone a new a new life has begun friends hear and believe the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ we are forgiven I can get all the kids to come on down. We're going to start sending them down during the Gloria Patri just to save a little bit of time. So that's, that's the thinking behind that. She's okay. She's fine. She's my helper. Well, good morning, everybody. How is everybody? Awesome. You all look awesome this morning. You look good. I know we learned about uh, and have been learning about Joseph for the last few days, right? Some of the things we've learned about him, Joseph was a pretty cool guy, wasn't he? Yes, and a lot of people thought a lot of him. He was very handsome, he was very smart, he was very faithful, right? And a lot of, a lot of people thought he was an okay guy. However, there were some that weren't, weren't a real big fan. His brothers, yeah, they were, they were mean to him, Liza, you're exactly right. Do you guys know anybody like that? that just really seems to have it all together and they're good at sports and they're good in school and they have lots and lots of friends. You guys know people like that? Yeah? Yeah, I do too. So what do you know about Joseph? Riley, what do you know about Joseph? 
He did get put in jail. He went through a lot of stuff. I'm not asking you, Robert, because you'll have us here all day. You know the whole story. I'm going to talk to you in Children's Church. I may let you lead today. Yeah, Rob, Robert knows this story. Well, the thing about Joseph was this. We talked, remember Wednesday night when we said Joseph's life went like this? It was up sometimes. He was really doing well, and everybody thought a lot of him. And then, ooh, it would go way down, and he'd be in some bad spots. He did get thrown in a well, Walker. You're exactly right. Yes. What was the thing, though? We talked about how Joseph's life went like this. Do you remember that? How did his faith go? Do you remember that? Like this. Even though his life went up and down, good times, bad times, good times, bad times, his faith stayed strong the whole time. He didn't lose it. And when he was down here, he was praising God. And he was saying, God, help me through this rough time because I know that I'm living in your, in your will. And even though I'm going through a bad time, I'm going to stick with you, right? He didn't go, hey, God, why are you doing this? He's like, God, this is obviously is your plan and I'm following it. And then when he's up here, what was he doing? Right? And he was going, thanks, God. Thank you so much for getting me up here. He went all the way down and all the way back up to be acknowledged by the most powerful guy in the whole world. And you know what he said? That's okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate it, Pharaoh. But the truth of the matter is, I've been with God the whole time, and there's no man on earth that can compare with God. So we're going to talk a little bit about this when we get upstairs, and we'll get your thoughts on that. We're going to talk about how we can apply that to our lives, right? Right now, though, let us pray, and we're going to talk about uh, go to God in prayer and thank him for all that we have, okay? Are we ready for that? Let's get our prayer hands out. You ready, Liza? Yeah. Dear God, thank you so much for this gorgeous day you've given us. Thank you for all of these children who have come here to learn about you and to be fulfilled in your word. And Lord, thank you for the example of Joseph, somebody who went through a lot of stuff and stayed with you. And Lord, help us to live that life as well and to know that you're with us even in those down times and to praise you and thank you in all things. It is in your most precious name I pray this morning. Amen. Folks, we are going to be coming back in during the um, doxology. So be prepared and be on the lookout for your little guy. We're going to be coming in from the back and coming back in this way, okay? Just a little heads up. <laughs> we'll see you later. Let us pray. Gracious and all-knowing God, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and feet to act as we hear your word read and preached. In Jesus' name, amen. By those who are able to please stand for our first lesson, it comes from Matthew's Gospel. This first one in the New Testament makes it very easy to find. It's the first chapter. Another easy to find, and we're going to start with the first verse. Listen now to the Word of God. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar, 
and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Abed by Ruth, and Abed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And then to verse 16, and a much later Jacob we're talking about here, but it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Again, I invite those who are able to please stand. Our second lesson comes from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and in the last chapter, which is number 50, picking up in verse 15, listen now to the Word of God. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. 
So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I hope you're enjoying the story. I know uh, many of you all are reading it. Some are in a Sunday school class. Uh, some for, are teaching a Sunday school class and still getting the same story. Uh, some of you are just simply reading this on your own. But I hope you're getting a lot out of it as we see God's story moving along. In chapters like this, uh, I'm presented with a particular challenge because so much is covered in chapter 3 of the story. Now, last week, uh, Reverend Hasty took one approach. When there's a lot, you pick one item and just focus on that, and that's exactly what he did with chapter 2. Wednesday night, I stepped back a few hundred feet, uh, also speaking from chapter 2, and presented the topic, The Real Housewives of Genesis. And I looked at the stories of Sarah and Hagar and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. And if you just look at their stories, you can make a TV series just out of that. Um, but I looked at a common thread with them. With a chapter like this, though, I'm, I find a third approach the best, where we're going to zoom out 50,000 feet, look at pretty much the whole chapter, and then from there find what is this common denominator and all that takes place here. Because with the story of Joseph, you could, either, you could easily do six, eight sermons just on his life. But I only get one shot today. Some of you all have read the chapter. Some of you know this story from childhood. But some have not read. For some, it is new. And so I'm going to do a brief summary, make some comments along the way, and then bring it together, how it applies to us at the end. In fact, in the story of Joseph, we meet him. He's quite a character. He is the favorite child. There are 12 sons, and he is the oldest son of one of the wives. And in the birth order, he is number 11. Reuben is the firstborn son, period. First one that was ever born, as well as the firstborn of Leah. And he should be the heir, not Joseph though he does have a claim of some sorts, being the firstborn by that second, uh, second wife. He is spoiled. He is indulged. Some consider him a punk or a spoiled brat. Maybe he just had a sense of um, naive innocence about his position. Well, of course, Dad likes me best. That's, that's just the way it is. And the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. That is the universe, and I'm it. He uh, has this habit, uh, initially, of um, flaunting his status. Uh, one point he sees the brothers, they're not working like they should, and so he lets Big Daddy know. He is now, in our story moves along, he is sent to check on his brothers. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, he also had the um, bad form to tell his brothers about a dream that he had. Guess what? I dreamed that you bowed down to me. Now, that's a great way to win friends and influence people. Those of you with siblings, particularly if you are older in the birth order and you're thinking about a younger sibling, 
Maybe, you know, some things are coming out or you're thinking about better things that you have observed with others. Well, he sent along to check on the work of the brothers and um, see how well they're doing. Now imagine in my case going to visit my sister in Murfreesboro, putting on a white glove and then going through the house and doing a white glove test and making commentary on her housekeeping techniques, which I'm sure are perfect and, and above board and everything. I mean, Martha Stewart, I'm sure, uh, takes lessons from her. Or for those with, with brothers, imagine going to visit your brother and saying, how are you running your business? And can I look, may I look at your checkbook? And uh, by the way, this is how you could do your job better. You can imagine the sort of a love that's going to be generated by such an action. Well, off he goes, and he's wearing his coat of many colors, the sign that he is the favored child. And this morning I sat in on Sunday school. Ida Page led the, um, the adult class this morning. And she made a good point, too. Not only did the coat of many colors suggest that he was, a privileged, he was the privileged child, but also let, let them know, I really don't do a lot of hard work like you all do. I mean, imagine that. I mean, think, I'm going to do the men and the women, but ladies, imagine one of your favorite party dresses. I mean, it shows you just in the right light. You don't put on that dress to clean house or to run to the grocery store or to do any of your errands. Unless you're going home after a party, you might run in to grab something, but that's not what you would wear for that. That dress is a special dress, and when you're wearing it, you're letting folks know, I'm not really gonna lift a finger right now, I'm gonna have a good time. Men, we have our clothes. Uh, now, obviously some men work now in coat and tie, but when you're wearing a coat and tie, you're basically saying, I'm not going to work on the car right now. Or if you do, it's not by design. You find that flat tire, and one of the first things you do, you take off the coat. You might even take off the shirt and the tie to do that work. So he's pretty much wearing the clothes that says, I'm going to check on what you're doing, and do not think for an instant. I'm going to lift a finger to help. So in he goes to check on them. They are some distance away. They are resentful. They see him come, and they get an idea. We are far from home, and you know what? A lot of things can happen when you're on a trip in the wilderness. And so they have an idea to do away with their brother, eliminate the problem completely. Now Reuben, the oldest, suggests, let's just throw him in a pit. Now there are a couple of ideas here. One is Reuben, and that's another story, but Reuben had um, fallen out of favor with his father, so maybe he's trying to think of a way to get back in good with his father. Or maybe he just wants to do something right, but he's in the face of a lot of opposition. I think, imagine you're in middle school, and there's the class nerd, and you want to be kind to the class nerd, but you're in the presence of other people in school, and so that can be a real challenge, quite frankly, just being decent to the outcasts in high school and middle school, and maybe that's it. He, he wants to do the right thing. How can I quietly, discreetly do it? Regardless, he goes in and he suggests that. But then he's away. Maybe he's feeding the sheep, and the brothers are eating, and they get this bright idea. In fact, it's Judah that brings up the bright idea. Let's sell him to these traders that we see coming through. We get some money out of the deal. He's sold. He's still alive. There's no blood on our hands, and we're not responsible for what happens to him once he is away. It seems like the perfect plan, and mind you, Judah came up with this 
This is important. We're going to get back to this later, so I'm giving you a spoiler alert. And they come up with a clever way to deceive their father. They take the coat of many colors, they rough it up, they dip it in blood, an animal's blood, and they say to their father, look what we found. What do you think? And they let him draw his own conclusion, so they've got some wiggle room to say, we didn't lie. We found it. That's true. Never mind the fact we're the ones who took it off of him. We found it on the brother. Never mind that. We found it and let him draw his own conclusions. Well, off he goes. And then for 20 plus years, he will be out of the picture. Joseph is sold sold into slavery. He goes from um, from, from being the heir to being the prince even to being property. There's an observation I want to make here. It says in Scripture that the Lord was with Joseph. Somehow, some way, something clicks in Joseph. He goes back to the bedrock of faith. Now, we don't know the particular details or how it happens, but somehow it clicks with him, and the Lord is with him. I'm reminded of the stories told POWs in Vietnam who found themselves, once they were at the Hanoi Hilton, relying on the scriptures that they remembered and the hymns from childhood and the prayers that they had been taught. People getting the results from tests they were not expecting. Loss of a job or a job is not as great as a person thought it was going to be. Pushed back to these situations. People can draw on their faith. And it seems that Joseph does just that. There he is now in Egypt. And he is sold to Potiphar, a government official, a person of authority. And Joseph enters into a position of authority and power in the household. He is running things. As slavery goes, it's a pretty good gig. He is in charge. He is trusted. And then, while he's at work, somebody betrays him because he took the high ethical road. Now, I know that's hard to believe in this day and age. Somebody, gosh, you're being ethical at work and um, somebody uh, betrays you because of that. I know that that's hard to imagine in this day and age, but yes, it happened then. Enter Mrs. Potiphar, the wife of his master. Now, those of you of a certain age, if you want to imagine the graduate, that would be very accurate at this point. Think Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft. Think Mrs. Potiphar as Mrs. Robinson. He is handsome. Joseph is handsome, virile, and young, and she is lonely, and she makes a move. You're trying to seduce me, Mrs. Potiphar. Oh, you want me to seduce you, Joseph? And it's interesting when you think about it, here we have an early account of sexual harassment in the workplace, and it's the woman who is the guilty party. I know the historical balance does not work that way, but nevertheless, in this case, she makes a move, she seduces him, but he responds with integrity. No, I will not do this. And she accuses him of attacking her. She grabs his cloak as garment as he runs away 
And then she tells her husband that he has done this, this deed, which, of course, he did not do. And he ends up in prison. Now, some speculate that Potiphar actually knew what exactly happened because he did not have Joseph killed or kill him himself. It would have been nothing for him to do that in that day and time. Uh, but in fact, it says that he believed him, but he knew he had to be taken out of the picture, and that's why he had him put into prison. Nevertheless, Joseph is once again back in a pit, and yet God is with him still. He rises to a position of authority in the prison. Joseph is learning some administrative skills. This says the chief justice and the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. So as jail time goes, this is a pretty big, good gig. He has got responsibility, he is trusted, he is prospering. And then the plot enters a new twist. There are two new jailbirds added to the, the population. One is the baker and one is the cupbearer, sometimes translated as the butler. Now these are very responsible positions. The cupbearer is giving the king something to drink. And typically, or the pharaoh in this case, but is give, is the cupbearer would take the first sip. So every day that the cupbearer wakes up alive, it's a good day. Nobody's poisoned the king that pharaoh this go around. Any um, position of responsibility. The chief baker is the one who cooks. Another trusted position. Not only must the food have good presentation and all of those other cooking details that are brought up on the TV shows, but also it has to actually not kill you. Tastes good and not kill you. He may have had to take a bite himself. These are positions of authority and trust, and there they are in prison with Joseph. And they both have dreams. And he is an interpreter of dreams. Now, the butler's dream, the cupbearer's dream, he is told, and uh, Jacob said, I mean, Joseph says, excuse me, in three days you will be released, and all will be set right, basically. Well, that's good news for him. And Joseph says, please remember me when you're outside. Now, for the baker, the news is not so good. It's basically, in three days, you're going to be hanged. And the cupbearer is released, and the baker is hanged, and he's out of the picture, and the, and the cupbearer, the butler, is back in the great house. And he forgets Joseph. That made me think how often, uh, maybe you've had that experience, uh, somebody with a work associate or a friend or a relative, you've done something for that person, and they kind of forget you ever did it. You're going, hey, don't you remember I scratched your back? And the person goes, I ever had an itch? I don't remember having an itch. I don't know if that ever happens these days, but that happened then. But it has got me thinking, have I overlooked somebody these days? So again, a lot of reflecting on my part. Two years of waiting. Two years of thinking, hey, buddy, if you get a chance, put in a good word for me, and nothing happened. Another betrayal, a small-scale betrayal compared to the other ones, but one nevertheless. But then Pharaoh has a dream, a perplexing dream. And then 
the cupbearer remembers, oh yeah, there was this guy back in prison that was good, handy with dreams. And so he's brought before the Pharaoh. And he says, after he tells the dream to Joseph, Joseph says, for seven years it's going to be bumper crops. There's going to be produce produced all over this country. It's going to be great. And then seven years of a famine. It's going to be terrible. And so a huge program is begun. And Joseph is put in charge of it. Granaries must be built to save the, to save the bumper crops. Don't eat it all. Don't have a big party. No, nothing like that. Save, save, save. So when seven years come, we can ration out the food and people will be able to survive. Well, he is in charge of that. And for seven years, it is building granaries, it's creating a storehouse system, it is all that kind of network, all of that is being done. And then the seven years of famine begin. After time, back in the promised land where they're having a famine too, Jacob hears that there is grain in Egypt, and he sends the sons to Egypt to get grain. Benjamin remains behind, that is Joseph's only full brother, younger son of Rachel, and is kind of the pet now, but all the others go down. When they come into his presence, the brothers come into his presence, they bow. Um, Joseph now has the good sense not to say, you know, funny, I had a dream about this, about some people bowing to me. Now he presents himself as an Egyptian official. He is an official of the court of Egypt, and he's at his, his appropriate outfit for the job. He is speaking Egyptian and having somebody translate for him, and they have no way of recognizing him. He accuses them of being spies and puts them on the defensive. He asks questions. Tell me about your family. Are there other brothers? Do you have a father? Is he alive? Or is your father alive? Yes, he's alive. Yes, we have a brother. So again, Joseph can check off these facts without, um, again, just asking basic information, but he's getting some facts for himself. Again, to keep them on their guard, he puts them in prison for three days and then finally lets them go back. They've got coinage to pay for the grain. But he says, you must, I want to see your brother. Now, they don't want to show the brother because then the father won't let him come down. He's concerned. What if he lost, his, lost him too? But he says, nothing more until I see him. And he holds one of the brothers, Simeon, as a hostage. Well, off they go back the promised land. They notice they've got their coinage in their bags, but they just keep on, they go on back home and they tell their father what has happened. Well, he's not about to let Benjamin go at this point. He said, I've lost my son Joseph. I've now lost my son Simeon. I'm not going to lose another son. But time passes and the grain runs out. And so off they go. This time, Jacob does allow Benjamin to go because Judah personally offers to care for him. Again, Judah, who sold Joseph into slavery, and more is to happen to him. But anyway, he offers personally to care for Benjamin, and Benjamin is brought. Joseph sees his brother, weeps privately to finally see him, and invites them all to a big dinner at his home. I'm sure the brothers are very dumbfounded by all of this, but they come and they are seated at a Hebrew table. There's a table for the Egyptian help, and Joseph has his table. He keeps the social customs of the day intact. But this is it. 
He seats the brothers by birth order. And they never told him in what order they were born. And after you get a certain age, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell exactly which sibling came first. I mean, you may be able to pick out from a large group, well, that group, they're kind of towards the older end, and they've got to be towards the younger end, and they've got to be at the middle end. But the precise, it's very difficult to tell. I served a church in Virginia. There were 12 children in a family. Some of them lived elsewhere. Only, only a small number were still there in, in the area. And sure enough, you could tell who among the older and the younger, but unless I had listened, and I did, you would not have been able to guess who, some, some were old, you know, who was the firstborn, who was second, and whatnot. Anyway, they are seated. They're definitely a little uh, perplexed. And then he sets up the ultimate test. While formal goodbyes are being said, he has, again, their coins put back in the bags, and then he has his big silver cup put in the bag that belongs to Benjamin. Off the brothers go, and then all of a sudden, an arresting party comes up and grabs them and takes them back to the court, to the palace. He says, you have stolen from me. No, we haven't stolen from you. Let me look into the bags. They go through all of them, and they get to Benjamin's bag, and there is the silver cup. Aha, this is the one. But let me make a special deal with you. You all, brothers, can leave with your grain, your coins, your freedom. Just leave Benjamin behind as a slave for me. The rest of you are free to go. An ultimate test to see what they will do when offered a chance to repeat history. They're there, they're shocked, but then Judah steps forward and he tells the story again of their father and what had happened at the loss of a brother. And then Judah offers himself as a slave in place of Benjamin. Judah, the one who had the original idea, hey, let's sell Joseph. He is the one who says, I will be the one to take the penalty. Many years later, Judah's descendant, Jesus Christ, will take our punishment onto him. We even get a bit of foreshadowing of what will happen, and that is the connection with Matthew to this lesson. Judah offers to do this for Benjamin. At this point, it's too much for Joseph. He sends all the Egyptians out of the room, and then he reveals himself to his brothers in privacy. And I can imagine what kind of family reunion would that be? I mean, they are stunned. They are shocked. They are speechless. Do you blame them? They've almost seen a brother um, enslaved, they're thinking, my gosh, we've just been accused of, of theft. And oh my gosh, now our baby brother that we wronged many years ago, not only is he here, he's alive, he is large, he is in charge. What is going to happen now? But then Joseph says, and do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And what follows is a tremendous family reunion. Jacob is, they go back and they get Jacob. They tell him, your son is alive. 
And that boy's done good. And they all move down to Egypt, the whole extended family. And they're given choice land on which to settle. Joseph can make that happen. And there are many, many good years. But then Jacob, in old age, dies. And the brothers are concerned. Big Daddy's gone. What are we going to do now? I mean, these days, we have all seen what happens in some families when the last parent dies. The sibling stuff held back for 40, 50, 60 years can tumble out. You were daddy's favorite. Mama's not here to cover for you anymore. I'm going to speak my mind. And I know of a few instances where minds were spoken and uh, words were said and actions taken. Well, they approach Joseph. And again, as you've read our lesson this morning, even say, now, our father's last words were to be nice to us and to forgive us. Just in case you just want to know, let's, again, let's bring up daddy any chance you get. Well, Joseph weeps more out of sadness that they felt they had to do this. And he says, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And the story ends in a way with a second reunion. Now, as I said earlier, some of these chapters in the story, some you just have to, they're big, you just have to pick one particular element here, I've decided to go very big and to look at the big common thread in all of this. In this story, we see a person who is privileged on the front end, who goes from being privileged to being a possession. We see him in the midst of this. God is with him. Somehow, his walk with God is initiated or deepened. And we see him able to look back and see all of these circumstances working to put him into a favored position to help and to save others, a kind of perspective. On the cover of the bulletin, I make a reference from the participant's guide to the story. That's what used in the adult Sunday school class. It's about Chuck Colson, or Charles Colson, I think referred to him there formally by his uh, first name. But the statement is made that sometimes a hard place is the right place for a person to meet God and become a useful instrument in the hand of the master. This was true for Charles Colson, a brilliant, brilliant political strategist and special counsel to President Richard Nixon in the 1970s. Although he was never actually prosecuted for any crime related to Watergate, he did plead guilty and was incarcerated for obstructing justice and spent time in prison. It was a painful season that led Colson to seek the face of God and surrender his heart to Jesus Christ. And in that low point, God began to transform Colson into a new man. He went on to start prison fellowship, reaching out to prisoners and their families. He had an extensive writing career, uh, using his brilliant mind, uh, his deep faith, weaving that together. There's some interesting points on how uh, faith and politics can intersect 
and actually intersect in a way, and often words of um, critiquing uh, for those conservatives as well as liberal. He went on to have an enormous influence. It later says here, had Colson never got caught and endured the pain and struggle, he might never have encountered Jesus. He could testify that the hardest, darkest times are sometimes God's best times to capture our hearts and shape our lives. Winston Churchill, at a very, very trying time in the history of Great Britain, becomes prime minister at the beginning of its darkest hour, and he said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Eleven years he had been in the political wilderness and a bit of a joke within the conservative party. And there he was, because of that, freed from entanglements. Nobody had really used him politically one way or the other, so there were no really scores to settle or anything like that. He was able to bring folks together. Joseph could say, if my brothers had not turned on me, if Potiphar's wife had not falsely accused me, I would have never ended up meeting Pharaoh's servants in prison. I might never have become the king's right-hand man. That circumstance, all of that was used for the saving of God's people. Joseph was able to see his life in light of the upper story, in light of the big picture. And that's the takeaway that I want to bring to us today. A call for us, for you, all of you, to look in terms of your lives. Where is God using it in terms of a bigger picture and upper story? Even the parts that are not pleasant. I can look back now and I can see some things that, oh, they make sense. I can say, thank you, Lord, for not answering that particular prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your presence in that tough place, even though it was really bad. And you know what? I can even work on forgiveness for some who have done wrong for me if I focus on the good that God brought out of it. And let me tell you, that can be hard. As I have said before, forgiveness is not in the Dalton family vocabulary. Daltons don't forget. We carry so many grudges, we have to have storage sheds in the backyard to keep up with them all. We don't have lists. We have novels. You sing Gone with the Wind, it's about that thick. And it even now, even in these last several weeks, I'm being reminded about forgiveness. And for a friend who likes to TiVo us on the service, when you watch this, yes, I'm remembering our conversation on the phone. By the grace of God and Jesus Christ, I can prayerfully look at it and see the bigger picture. Now, I will admit, there are chapters and there are episodes and there are incidents that still do not make sense to me. I cannot figure it out. I don't know where it fits into the plot. I would just assume it was written out of the plot and erased from my memory. So I, I'm in there trying to figure a lot of this out myself. But I can also turn around and say, Lord, by faith, I'm going to trust you with it. 
I want to leave you with two questions to ask yourselves and then a prayer for all of us. One question to ask yourself, where has God been working and shaping and forming me even in a hard time? And ask, is God seeking to teach me something in the midst of whatever is taking place? Through all the good and the bad, how has God been working at shaping and forming me? And is God seeking to teach me something that I have missed? And a prayer for all of us is that our ears would hear and our eyes would see and our minds would understand and our hearts would receive what God has to show us. And if this current tough place, if you find yourself in a tough place, if that current place can help you grow, then to pray for the courage to embrace it. My prayer for all of us is that in the end we can say, God meant it for good. Amen. Let us now stand and say what we believe using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Almighty, gracious, and loving God, you bring peace, and we pray for peace with you, peace with each other, and peace with ourselves. We pray for peace with you, Lord. We pray for the lessons that you call us to learn. We pray for whatever hinders our fellowship with you. We pray for those with their own private struggles that challenge their own peace, for we are aware that everyone is fighting a battle. We pray for peace with others. We pray for family and friends. We give thanks for all our good relationships, and we pray for healing and closure for those relationships that are troubled. We pray for peace of mind for those grieving and those who are sick, and for those who see limited options in their lives and those who are looking for any option. We pray for peace in our world, peace steps that we take when we serve in mission, when we care for one another in this church family and our circles of, of family and friends. We pray for those who preserve the peace, police officers and deputies, our armed forces, those who protect us as firefighters. And we pray these things in the name of the Prince of Peace, who taught us to pray, saying, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It is good to see you all here today, and invite those who are here to please sign the attendance pads, then of your pews, and then back to a point of origin. Be sure and greet one another following the worship service, and greetings to those who are worshiping at Spring Harbor, those who are worshiping at home or in your hospital room or nursing home room, those who are watching us online, on TV, or later, compliments of TiVo. A greetings to all of you. There are many things coming up in the weeks ahead. I commend those in the bulletin to you. Next Sunday afternoon, a group are going to see Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, I believe, um, can they contact Kimberly Church office tomorrow? Yes, okay. Uh, about that, if you would like to, show, like to attend that a as a group. Slightly different take on our lesson today. Um, also, we have things coming up the Wednesday nights, um, ways of serving. It's all in the bulletin. I commend that to you. Let us now continue our worship of God as we present to God our tithes, our offerings, our gifts, and our very selves.
gracious God, you have blessed us to be a blessing. May these tithes, these offerings, and these gifts be a blessing of hope to a needy world. In Jesus' name, amen. God require of us but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And now may the love of God our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>